Hello and welcome to Centre for Mental Health's podcast, where we talk about mental health, equality and social justice. I'm Thea Joshi, and in each episode we hear from people with lived experience or those working in a specific area of mental health. And we also hear from members of our own team to hear about how we're working in the fight for equality in mental health. In this episode, I sat down with our Chief Executive, Sarah Hughes, to look back at 2021 and the impact of the Centre's work through another challenging year. Before we get into it, I just wanted to acknowledge that with the current COVID situation and increased uncertainty around the festive period, things might be feeling really hard at the moment. We know that Christmas and New Year can be difficult at the best of times. So if you're struggling, please do check out the list of helplines and resources that are in our show notes. I hope you enjoy the episode. So here we are, December 2021, and I'm very happy to be welcoming back our Chief Executive, Sarah Hughes, back to the podcast. Welcome. Hello. I can't believe it's December. I know, this year has flown by. And I was reflecting that the last time we had you on was January 2020, and obviously we had no idea what was in store for us. Oh my goodness. It feels, uh, I mean, it's it's extraordinary, isn't it? Because on one hand, it feels like unbelievably fast that we've got to December but also when you reflect back so much has happened in this year and um, in five ten years time when we look back I think there'll be a huge amount of disbelief around some of the things that we've all experienced both individually and collectively and uh, at some point we have to process it but I don't know when that time will be. Yeah I don't know when we get time to do that but um... Uh, I should say as well that we are also joined by a very important four-legged furry friend, which is Sarah's new kitten. Yes, my little baby, Indy, who literally, I do feel a little bit like an evil genius sitting in my uh, office chair with a little (laughs) cat on my knee, but um, she is just a gift and uh, I'm very lucky to have her. So apologies to everybody for all of the social media kitten spam you're going to get over the coming weeks and months I'm having to limit myself because I mean the temptation just to literally uh, post every five seconds is just you know a bit much I think social media probably needs more kitten spam if anything so don't worry about that okay okay, that's good yeah and if people hear any meowing that's that's what it is it's not Sarah going off piece So, yeah, on the podcast, we usually interview people about the work they're doing and and work which links back to our core value of equality and mental health. But that means we don't often talk that much about the work that we're doing kind of week to week, month to month. Um, So that's why I really wanted to sit down with you uh, at the end of this year, kind of metaphorical, warm fireside sort of vibes and just kind of hear a bit more about what the centre's been up to this year. Well, I mean, I think it would be uh, remiss of me and unusual of me not to acknowledge how incredibly hard everybody's worked um, during 2021. I mean, uh, you know, I am always in awe of the capacity, the commitment, the passion, the thoughtfulness that the team show around every single thing that we do, the work that you do in comms. But, you know, I, I feel really struck by that every day. And I think that makes my job much easier because let's face it you know we are in a situation where things are really difficult out there and so not only is it important for us at the centre to make sure that we're creating our own organisation which um, 
prioritizes staff well-being but also values what people are doing every day you know everybody's got their own stuff going on uh, as well as you know fighting the big fight for equality so I really do want to honor that and I you know send thanks and love to every single one of you and us um I, I think that 2021 has been a year of really trying to make sense of what happened in 2020 in many respects. So in 2020, we were in very much reactive mode to this new virus, to really thinking about, okay, well, where does mental health sit in all of this? Um, Where does it sit both in people's experiences every day? And where does it sit in terms of policy and services and the world in which we exist? And I think it's fair to say that um, it was very reactive 2021, we, uh, 2020. We didn't know what was going to happen from one day to the next. We made a very um, clear decision that we were going to work through the pandemic and we were going to basically be in service to the system, even though I think that was, you know, it was a really tricky decision, but one that I'm glad that we made. And 2021 has been, um, I think in some ways, a bit more challenging really because that first year of pandemic there's lots of high energy you know okay let's keep going let's keep going let's try and make the difference we want to see 2021 is a year of coming to terms with the new reality that we now find ourselves in and um frankly after the news that we've had over the last week or so um a situation we're really going to be living with for a much longer period of time and that uncertainty creeps in again doesn't it so 2021 has been both doing much of that trying to understand trying to communicate that understanding to others but also raise the profile of the issues that still aren't getting the profile they need so things like the forecasting work that we've done which you know we know at the centre has had the most significant impact in terms of helping government helping decision makers make the decision around investment um the 500 million that went into nhs england uh, at, at the end of 2020 um we know that we have contributed to the extraordinary kind of level of understanding around inequality you know particularly around poverty particularly around race you know the work that we've done with um, colleagues at MIND and others in Birmingham around trying to understand the experiences of black men the work that we've done in terms of receiving and understanding the stories through a year in our lives all of that is about making sense of and trying to share that with people so that it really does inform their decision making Um, but it's also been really hard to face some of that truth. So our researchers and our policy thinkers and, you know, we've all been in that space where we're trying to make sense of the really difficult stuff, you know, what's happening to people out there, you know, what does mental illness mean in a post-pandemic or a pandemic world? Um, and so that's been hard on two fronts, isn't it? You know, we're thinking about it all the time, so very little space to think about other things. Um, but also trying to convey that to a government, to services that are dealing with a huge amount of other things. Um, you know, sometimes it's ideological differences in terms of what we are recommending and what the government think that they can offer. But often it's, 
the complexity of all of the things that everybody is trying to deal with and think about and resolve. And, you know, I understand when you have, you know, complex problems, it's sometimes very easy to think they're too complex. We can't deal with them. But what we're doing at the centre is saying, yeah, they are really complex. There's no two ways about it. But actually, we do have some of the answers to some of these things. And so all of our work has been about saying these are some of the solutions that we think um, could really make a difference to people's lives. Thank you so much for that. Just a really helpful overview of, of kind of the complexities of a what we've been doing and also the context we've been doing it in. That's really helpful. And um, yeah, I think, as you say, it's that need for a systemic holistic approach which is not the easy route it's actually very very complex because it means talking to all these different departments services on different levels different parts of government it's really really complex and so it's definitely not the easy route but we know it's the route that is actually needed to make change happen so you mentioned there about the the forecasting work that we've been doing could you just run us through that briefly for people who aren't aware of that would you mind just taking us through it yeah absolutely I mean when when the pandemic started to deepen um around um may last year we decided you know i felt really keen to try and do some of the forecasting work that we that we could see that the scientists were doing for the pandemic so i thought how could we replicate some of that and of course you know we were certainly not the only people that came up that that idea or that desire to forecast many people started to try and do that around the world but we did we built basically a framework for modeling what might be the um, increase in demand and need in terms of mental illness and Nick O'Shea our extraordinary chief uh, economist um, basically worked with partners across the country to formulate this framework, to populate it using live NHS data so that we could really model, we could um, kind of really factor in some of the issues that kept emerging. So, you know, we were able to forecast at sort of quarterly intervals and each time the numbers didn't really change but what we were able to see was a kind of contextual relevance and a pattern emerging so we knew for instance that um, increase in demand definitely uh, you know kind of shot up when concerns about lockdown or isolation or new restrictions were being discussed or just brought in so we could start to build up those patterns we could see that at the end of last year that there was a potential perfect storm which was about you know Brexit flu season the end of furlough and of course you know much of that has been repeated this year so again we were able to communicate with government and others about you know what we felt was coming around the corner but the important thing with forecasts is that they are modelling. So, you know, the, these aren't kind of, you know, absolute numbers. But what they do is that they allow services, decision makers, communities to mitigate what we think might happen. Now, sadly, what we've seen um, is that our forecast has come to pass. 
So we wanted to be able to say at this point, yes, we forecast that 10 million people will need specific mental health support as a result of the pandemic. We would have liked to have been able to say, um, but because of X, Y and Z, we have mitigated all of those things. And I think we can't say that. And we can't say that because um, the pandemic has deepened. So all of those experiences have deepened. We haven't seen a, a kind of end date. We haven't seen the investment into mental health that we'd have liked to have seen or a comprehensive sort of acceptance of some of the mental health challenges that we've seen. So whilst we haven't seen an increase in suicide and um, thank God that we haven't, the reality is, is that we have seen an increase in people experiencing profound distress yeah. in their everyday yeah. lives. Um, so I think it's it's really, uh, you know, our feeling that we, we've done these forecasting as a kind of, yes, as a warning, um, but also a way of helping people to understand that, you know, uh, we we didn't like to use the word tsunami or crisis. We use the language around rising tide. We don't want people to think this is hopeless because we do know some of the solutions, as I said before, and we also know that it is possible to turn this ship around and that it is possible to make a difference. So, you know, things like um, we really feel that it's important that all environments become trauma informed you know, schools, communities, workplaces, all of those sorts of things, so that we really do pay attention to what people have gone through over the last two years. Yeah. We really do think that the welfare system really needs to take into consideration the impact of poverty, that this country really, you know, has an opportunity more than many countries around the world to sort of make the changes there that would literally... Um, undo the kind of trajectory that some people experience in terms of the potential to have mental illness when you are experiencing poverty so you know all of these things are um important and systemic and if something is systemic that has to tell you that it's possible to change the system so you know we have those solutions um and not just here at the center but in lots of other places too and i think the challenge is now to really take us to the next level of getting decision makers persuading those people that have it in their gift to just do it do the stuff that we've identified make the difference yeah quite and um and obviously kind of simultaneously alongside that we've been so we've been forecasting and predicting the impact of the pandemic over the next sort of three to five years and obviously alongside that um researching the impact we are already seeing on kind of specific groups so do you want to talk us through that a little bit more yes absolutely and, and so I think um first and foremost it's important to acknowledge the experience of children and young people and I, I mean I I let's face it I mean they've had two years like and no other generation you know and, and I don't like comparing them to you know first second world war um, children but there is something quite profound about their experience yeah um and I know that certainly many of us still think that that is 
um, largely misunderstood in terms of the impact of children. So what I want to say first of all is that I think children are incredibly resilient and that we've seen an astonishing level of resilience um, across all ages. Um, you know, one minute being taught in school in an ordinary way and overnight um, being homeschooled by your parents or your primary caregivers at home is something quite stark in terms of a kind of psychological shift we expected our children to make. Mm, yeah. um, so what we know is that before the pandemic, we could say that one in eight children experienced uh, mental illness. Now we're saying uh, one in six. So, you know, that is an increase in numbers. We also know that for particular groups like eating disorders, um, we're seeing something like a kind of 50 percent uh, up to 100% increase in referrals and demand for services. We know that um, some children, young people have uh, really been isolated further from education. We know that uh, issues around behaviour, issues around um, being able to kind of engage in the school at home learning process for some children has been virtually impossible to do. And so, you know, we understand that that group of children particularly will be vulnerable like no other so again there are particular groups within children young people's kind of broad cohort that would have been much more harmed than others you know like Andy says all the time we were in the same ocean but we're not in the same boats and so we have also got to recognize that you know some children will not have experienced you know many challenges or as many challenges as others yeah. so you know, we, we've got a situation, I think, with children, young people, where we imagine that we're going to see a further increase in distress and illness over the coming years. Um, sadly, our campaign for early intervention hubs didn't get through the spending review. However, we have got family hubs that have been funded and we do hope that they will um, absolutely address the mental health issues that we've identified and that they will support families to offer mental health support. So um, I think that without doubt, we do need to be hypervigilant on children and young people um, over the next 10 years. Going into the pandemic, we were already saying, look, we're not quite there yet in terms of the complete picture of services we should be giving children and young people. And then we have the pandemic on mm. and basically it's almost um, back to square one in many respects. So um, we also know for people from racialized communities that it's been incredibly difficult. And again, for um, layer upon layer of reasons. Um, we know that people from racialized communities suffered the most in terms of the pandemic directly. They got iller, um, more people died, more people were um, from racialized communities, had their employment directly impacted. More people from racialized communities are on what we, you know, we unfortunately call, I think, the front line, you know, in all sorts of industries, not just health and care, but, you know, hospitality and transport. Um, so I think that, again, you know, it may be some years before we truly understand the trauma and the depth of what's happened. Um, and then when we think of the number of people who died across the UK, um, there will be families who will have been left with a very traumatic legacy because um, 
you know, dying and death is very difficult. You know, we already know in this country that we're not the best at sort of dealing and thinking about that. And then we have a scenario where, you know, people are dying without their family members close by. Um, all of these things uh, do not go without a psychological consequence. Yeah. And it would be incredibly naive if anybody thought that. And so we know over the coming years that there will be more to learn about that. And we are involved with the Bereavement Commission, along with other colleagues from Marie Curie and others, to really try and make sense of that. Because, frankly, um, you know, from my own experience, I absolutely know that uh, the legacy of loss uh, will be profound and generational. And we really do need to understand that. But I think it's, you know, um, it's really hard um, at the moment, I think, not to feel like when you're talking about these things, that you're like the, um, I don't know, you know, the voice of doom, you know. And we hear a lot from people about, you know, oh God, it's just all bad news. And, <laughs> and, you know, and also I think it's really hard for the government and for NHS and for other colleagues to hit, just be bed with this all the time and so I have this daily dilemma about you know do I want to be that person at the party when somebody offers me a canopy and I say yes but what about climate change um <laughs> I, I am that person sadly. yeah yeah um, and people sort of roll their eyes and often walk away that's basically what happens um but you know or uh, do we um, say nothing at all and that for us isn't an option saying nothing at all is is not an option speaking truth to power is the only thing that we know how to do um, but we also know that we have to do that with within this situation particularly because you know everybody's going through the pandemic um, with compassion with integrity with evidence so it's not good to just sort of you know from our perspective anyway just to kind of um, speak notionally about things so we speak with authenticity and evidence and integrity and our values at the heart of it um, but also with hope with answers that we're not just saying this is the problem can you please fix it that we're saying no this is a problem these are the some of the solutions that we think will make a difference and um, you know it's that it's that pendulum I'm doing a lot of thinking at the moment between sort of activism and diplomacy and you know we we kind of run across that spectrum every day and some of us are better at it than others <laughs> and so I know that sometimes when I tweet out some dodgy things or I might be speaking at a conference I can sometimes think um I've got Andy on my shoulder uh <laughs> reminding me that to keep the bigger picture in mind all the time because you know we really do want decision makers to make the right decision we're all you know we really do yeah, this is we're behind them in that. Yeah. yeah you know we are absolutely committed to equality and mental health and I don't care how we get there um, or who we get there with but we've got to get there Hey everyone, just interrupting the conversation for a moment to let you know about our New Year's fundraiser called Give Us Your Resolution. As we kick off 2022, we're inviting you to take up a wellbeing boosting activity for the whole of January and raise money for mental health while you do it. So you could take up yoga, painting, baking, walking, whatever it is that gives your mental health a boost and ask family and friends to help you meet the goal by sponsoring you. 
The money you raise will enable us to keep researching and campaigning for equality in mental health. You can find out more by going to centreformentalhealth.org.uk slash giveusyourresolution or check out the link in the show notes. Thank you. So we've talked a little bit about what we've done in terms of research and, and forecasting. We've talked a little bit about what we've done in terms of looking at the impact on groups. But I guess another arm of the centre's work is very much around um, working with services and uh, frontline to kind of really look at how we can equip people now, practitioners now, to make um, the best use of the resources they've got. So do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? And I guess I'm specifically thinking about the context of the COVID vaccines and the flu vaccine rollout this year. Yes, and and I think particularly around Equally Well, which, you know, um, is already a a, a collaboration between, you know, Rethink Us, uh, Lived Experience Group and, um, you know, the Royal Uh, academies and so on so this is a really important piece of work that we've been involved with for a few years and again when the pandemic hit we were kind of like okay this is important for equally well to you know continue to advocate for people with serious mental illness we already know that people with serious mental illness die up to 20 years before everybody else so you can imagine going into a pandemic we're like no no we're not we're not having that um you know we really do need to make sure that their needs are at the kind of you know heart of our advocacy and very early on there were things like um you know making sure that uh, people with serious mental illness were getting their health checks that actually people were checking on them that their community care teams were checking on them because you know we knew with covid for instance that people who lived on their own who were vulnerable may not access help for a fairly long time and then sometimes you know, we found that that was too late for some people. So, you know, encouraging, getting information out to voluntary sector organisations with our partners, you know, Association of Mental Health, Rethink, Mind, uh, Young Minds, all of the, you know, Global Black Thrive, you know, how do we get out to people? Please check on your caseload, you know, please check to make sure that people are okay. Um, We also, I think this was one of the most important things that we did. We raised the red flag around vaccines. So as soon as we knew that a vaccine came up, we found out very quickly that mental health was not on the early uh, vulnerability cohorts. And Andy was the first person to spot that and said, we also can't have that. And so we initiated a campaign through Equally Well and others Uh, And finally, uh, I think um, together we managed to make sure that mental illness was on the um, cohort six for the vaccine, which included other vulnerable groups for vaccination. That was so important. And we know from people with lived experience who've contacted us how important that was because we were providing them information through Equally Well that had been through NHS England that they could take to their GP and say, I am. I am allowed to have the vaccine, thank you, because we were hearing up until that point they were being told you're not a priority. And then, you know, we we, we heard differently, um, you know, because we had this, you know, we had this evidence, we had the kind of support from NHS England to say, no, you, you need to vaccinate people with serious mental illness. We ran into a bit of trouble because there were people with specific diagnosis, like personality disorder, for instance, that uh, there was a lot of kind of toing and froing, and I think um, you, you know we did a lot of 
advocacy at senior levels. We know that, you know, Emma did a lot of uh, local and individual ad advocacy, making sure that people got information, that she double checked, she spoke to people, you know, real kind of brokerage of the vaccines and people uh, with mental illness. So, uh, you know, I think if I'm proud of one thing, I think I would be really proud of the work that we did there. And I know that um, uh, our Emma, who is now on maternity leave, uh, is also very proud of that in very important, I think important moment in our work at the time in saying, we are not going to tolerate people with mental illness being excluded from any of these emergency responses. And thankfully, you know, we've got some great colleagues in the Department of Health and Social Care. The mental health team in the Department of Health and Social Care are great people. We work really closely with them. We, uh, you know, provide them with evidence. We provide them with the, the, the information that they need. And on that matter, um, they and NHS England absolutely held, went hell for leather to make sure that that happened. Yeah, it's so great to hear that. Thank you. I think that's de definitely, definitely a highlight of the year yeah. for us. And um, and it and it links right back again to our value of equality and mental health, because it's just not acceptable that some people who need the vaccine early didn't get it. And we will continue to just keep fighting for that, um, for, for justice for people living with mental illness. Um, yeah. I mean, there's there's so much more we could have talked about and I will link to our publications and all various bits and pieces. But I guess kind of looking forward um, to, to the year or the years ahead. And I'm thinking about a, a recent piece of work we did uh, with Ed Davey, our public affairs and policy lead, looking really at the way that these new integrated care systems, which will kind of formally come into being next year, how they can uh, prioritise mental health and I'd just love to talk a little bit about that before we go. Absolutely and um, I'm glad you have raised this because I think this is one of the things that we know could be the biggest lever for you know really making local systems make the most difference to the population that they serve and we see it as an opportunity. There's a lot of anxiety I know but I think you know we've been looking at integration for decades across NHS and care and all sorts of other organisations. We've tried all sorts of different models. This one, I think, is probably our best chance of making that happen. Um, but it's not perfect mechanism by any stretch of the imagination. And we at the centre have been doing a number of things around the ICSs. So we've been looking at the health and care bill and making sure that we feed back in about how we could prioritise mental health within that. So, for instance, mandating mental health representative on local boards, ICS boards, for instance, um, you know, having a very clear you know, mental health strategy that covers the, the entire gambit of services in any health and care system. So we've been doing a huge amount of that policy work behind the scenes, and that's been Andy and Ed really working with partners to really think about how we could make those amendments on that legislation. And then we've got the stuff that we want people within those systems to really think about. And our Better Together briefing was really a, a, both an invitation to ICSs to say, you know, this is what a mentally healthy ICS could look like. So do you want to be one? You know, this is this is a choice you can make, actually. Um, and by the way, this is how you can do it. 
And, and this is what integration means within this context. So what we're not talking about is uh, a system that only focuses on the acute end of the spectrum. We truly believe that an integrated system both prioritizes equally prevention intervention and acute services. And, you know, fundamentally we, in any health and care system, we don't really know how much we could reduce acute care because we don't actually have the prevention in all health domains that we know would work. So actually, you know, this kind of idea of, of you know, how, how do we manage these things in parallel, prevention and acute? Well, fundamentally, we have to do both until we know. I mean, there's just no other way around it. Um, but the, the, the evidence for various pockets of the system tell us quite clearly, if you are intervening early around mental health, you're giving people mental health literacy, you're creating communities that um, create the conditions for health, you know, that they've got access to green spaces, that people have got access to activities that fill their, you know, heart, mind, soul stuff. Um, you know, all of those things, as well as connection immediate access to support when you need it all of these things you know it's it can't be one or the other and this is what our piece is saying it can't be one or the other and the integrated care system is an opportunity to radically change people's experiences of health and that it can be a lever to create the conditions for health for you know populations that will have been marginalized from health for so many decades and that's not just racialized communities that is you know people who are you know older experiencing dementia alzheimer's children young people you know all of you know th this is a complex you know society is a beautiful tapestry of difference and ICSs really have it within their gift to pay attention to that to pay careful attention to that and our briefing sort of invites uh, those systems to say, well, look, you know, these are the these are the groups you need to inter, you know, integrate with. It has to be the voluntary sector. It has to be grassroots organisations. It has to be patient voice. You know, all of this stuff, um, and the outcome could be. I mean, I, you know, I imagine it and I'm trying to see it in my mind, you know, as I just say it to you. But the outcome could be transformative on a level that we haven't seen for a century. Yeah, I mean, and that is then bringing us back to what you said earlier about the hope element, that we're not only saying things are really bad right now. Someone better do something about it. We're saying things are really bad right now. But look at what we could do and actually look at what is fully within our grasp and within uh, our ability at different levels of government, um, at different levels of the community to actually achieve, like this is possible. And so we hold on to that hope because this is this is fully achievable. And so, as you say, we will work with whoever um, and wherever they are and in all areas of society and governance to make this a reality for people who are living with a mental health problem. Um, so that's a really encouraging note to end this on. Thank you, Sarah. And um, is there anything else you wanted to say? No, just that I do hope that people have a peaceful, festive period. And that, you know, I did I, I did something on my um, social media the other day because I realised that one of the things you and I actually, Theo, have talked about all the time is about how do we protect our mental health when everything around us is just sort of, you know, noise, noise, noise. And I think um, 
you know, we spend a lot of time campaigning in our organisation. And we, you know, as I say, you know, we are those party poopers, etc. you know, in many respects. But um, it's all right to both say no and to turn off and to look after yourself. And I think, you know, we are coming up to a challenging time. So I do urge people to, you know, think about how you are, um, you know, get the support that you need if you can. Um, but, you know, prioritise your mental health. And, you know, if that means, you know, not listening to the news or, you know, um, you know, walking away from somebody like me who's going to talk about climate change over coffee, then that's absolutely fine. Um, you know, we really do need to think about how are we going to get through the next six months? And, you know, that's going to be different for lots of us. But I do uh, wish people a, a peaceful, festive period. And let's hope we get to January. And again, we will have, you know, it's like a phoenix, isn't it? We will emerge from uh, this winter. It's like, um, I don't know if you watched Game of Thrones. Did you watch Game of Thrones? I feel like, you know, this is this is almost one of those scenarios like it's like these winters are tough but you know we're up for the fight at the center but not everybody else has to do that so you know <laughs> uh thank you so much for talking to us today and um yeah it's been a real joy i feel like we've, we've covered a lot i will put a lot of things in the show notes and uh yes thanks so much cool thank you as ever we really hope you enjoyed this episode and if you want to join the fight against mental health inequality, you can support our work at www.centerformentalhealth.org.uk forward slash donate. Or you could sign up to give us your resolution. From all of us here, we hope that you have a very peaceful and restful Christmas and New Year. See you next time.